to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am so delighted to have you listening with me today. I hope that you and your dogs are well wherever you are. Uh, The seasons are definitely changing here in Colorado. The temperatures are dropping. The leaves are starting to turn, and it's absolutely stunning. Uh, I know you guys hear me talk about this a lot. If you are new to the podcast, you're going to hear a lot about how beautiful Colorado is. I'm warning you, you may want to move here after listening to me and following me on social media. But yeah, uh, Tiva Whalen and I, we're, we're really spoiled. We get to spend a lot of time out in the beautiful Rocky Mountains and um, we're, we're really enjoying the change in season. The drop in temperature is pretty well received by both of the dogs. So I hope that it's cooling off wherever you live or warming up, depending on what part of the globe you're in. But um, if you guys haven't already listened to episode 37, breed-specific legislation, please do. Breed-specific legislation targets dogs based on looks alone, and it harms dogs and it harms communities. And this is something that's pretty important to me because Waylon, who is an American Staffordshire Terrier, is on the breed ban here in Denver, Colorado. That really affects our lives. Um, we had to live in a different part of Colorado because of breed-specific legislation, and the episode is jam-packed with so much information. So please give it a listen. Please share it with your friends um, so that we can educate and get BSL repealed and replaced in all places that it exists. Um, in today's episode, we're going to talk all about consent and choice in dog training, and it is an amazing episode, and I am so looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Before we jump into today's episode, um, if you guys like this podcast, please be sure to click the subscribe button so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you feel so inclined, I would love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can kind of just scroll down. There's a little purple pencil emoji. It it says write a review. You can click that, click five stars, and you can let me know what you like about the podcast. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends who own dogs. Um, My intention with this podcast was to make uh, dog training information easy to digest and easy to access. So that's why I do this podcast. And if you could share it with your friends who could also benefit from it, I would very greatly appreciate that. So uh, in today's episode, my special guest, Jenny Efimova, who is the owner and founder of Dog Minded in Boston, Massachusetts, is a badass, and I'm so grateful that she took the time. Um, She is a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner, and she is also a force-free certified trainer. She is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all things consent and choice in dog training, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear this episode. Enjoy it. I'm sure you are well aware of CBD for dogs. I give Tiva and Waylon daily CBD just to promote their overall health. And we use VetCS. VetCS is a veterinary-based hemp therapy company, and they make products for not only dogs, but they also make cat and horse products too. Their products are lab analyzed, and they will give you unmatched customer service. We love VetCS, and we are so excited to share this wonderful 
beautiful product with our listeners. If you are interested in learning more about VetCS, you can head over to their website, vetcs.com, and you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your first purchase. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs. I am so freaking stoked to talk about consent and dog training today. And Jenny, a fellow dog trainer extraordinaire, is with me, and she is going to drop all of her wisdom on how we can teach um, consent in training and relationship building with our dogs. So Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. Okay. So um, what what is your definition of consent as it pertains to training our dogs? So I think, um, let me just first say that, um, you know, before coming to dog training, I spent over a decade working with survivors of trauma, so survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And I did a lot of education about uh, intimate partner violence, power and control, and consent. So I've been doing a lot of work around consent with humans uh, for quite some time. Um, yeah. and I will use the definition of consent that's most frequently used when it comes to working with humans. Okay. So this is a very baseline. We'll look at consent as something, it's a permission for something to happen, right? Or an agreement for something to happen. But there are obviously layers to consent. So there is one way to teach consent that is based on the fries analogy or I think acronym is the right term. Okay. So F is for freely given. Love it. No coercion. Uh, R is for reversible, meaning you can give consent, but you can withdraw consent. I is for informed. So you know exactly what you are consenting to. You have all the information up front. Um, E is for enthusiastic. Um, so I think a lot of people may have heard kind of the old dynamic of no means no, but the absence of a no is not a yes. So enthusiastic consent is, it's a yes. Yes means yes. Love it. Uh, and it's specific, which means that you are agreeing to something very specific. Like one thing does not lead to another. Um, so that's fries. Oh my I, God, I love it. <laughs> um, so I think that's a pretty good definition and kind of way we can look at consent with dogs as well. I think that applies. Um, so for me, consent is just about the other individual knowing exactly what's going to happen, um, agreeing to it happening, agreeing to it happening the entire time and being able to opt out. Yeah. And I love what you said about it being specific because I feel like that's where there's a lot of gray area when it comes to our interactions with our dogs because we think like, oh, the dog offered one paw, so I'm good to clip all all of the nails. Exactly. Like, But that's not super specific, right? Because they agreed to give you a paw. And did they agree to every single nail being trimmed? Yeah. So, and what a beautiful understanding that you bring to the table working with people for so long. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but interestingly, you know, when I first adopted my dog Larkin and he had, he was struggling with a lot of things, um, pretty fearful. He wouldn't walk outside at one point. Um, actually the, the very first blog I ever wrote was about what he taught me about consent, <laughs> despite all my years of working. Um, with survivors of trauma and kind of really thinking I got it, 
And I totally understood what that's all about. And yet those were not values that I was practicing with my dog. Right. So there's just like a set of values I was practicing in my life, my work with my family, with my friends, um, but not with him. And it actually took me time to really understand that once I kind of got it together and got educated and started to really, um, you know, meet where he was and giving him choices and all of those things and saw the difference that that made that I really realized, well, it's kind of what you do. Like, that's kind of what I had been doing in my work. And yet I failed to make that connection, which I think is not uncommon. Um, I do think we tend to see our dogs very, very differently, which is, you know, I think there's just how we see dog training in general. Um, but yeah, it, it actually took me some time to apply that with him, with dogs. Yeah. And none of us are immune to that, you know, and it's, that's, what's so brilliant about our relationship with our individual dogs is like the light bulb moments that they get to give us and how we get to evolve and be better because of their specific teaching and lessons. It's so profound. I'm sure people are so sick of hearing me talk about it, but I'm never going to stop because it matters, you know, and if we can, if we can put consent into our relationships with our dogs, the possibilities are endless for how we can connect and communicate without the same language in common. Absolutely. And I think what you said, I think that the term relationship is what really matters because um, if you think about what the traditional mindset around dog training is it, and was, it, it, it's very much obedience focused, right? And obedience is, and I know we use the term obedience to describe like classes and behaviors, et cetera, but language matters. Yes. Obedience is very much compliance based, right? That's not really a two-way conversation. It's like, do this or us. Um, and that's not really what a relationship is. Um, relationship- not a healthy one. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Relationship is a two-way conversation. Um, and in a relationship, whether that's with a human or non-human individual, Um, we take the other individual's opinions and needs into account, right? And and ultimately, that is really what choice-based approach and consent really means, is that we're taking our dog's um, needs and point of view into account. Yeah. And I think that people are made to believe falsely that they have to make their dog do things in order to have like, you know, the definition of a a trained dog. And ladies and gentlemen of the internet, that is not the world we live in anymore. Like we don't subscribe to that. And I really don't think that you should either, because there is a lot of cost when you believe that you have to make your dog do things and you're missing out on some of the relationship that you could have on your dog if you chose a different route. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's actually quite contrary to what most of us want um, in terms of our lives with our dogs. I think that most of us have um, very profound relationships with our dogs and they take um, a really big piece of our lives. And I would say that most people might not even be comfortable verbalizing how just how much their dogs mean to them just how much they value them just how much of a meaningful relationship it is and I mean research shows that um and there's been studies done about how people feel about you know losing a pet and in some instances mourning 
their pet more than a human loss in their lives. So I think it's actually very contrary to what people want. And it is absolutely harmful if we approach it that way. But I think the good news is it's, there's a different way. There's another way. (laughs) There's a better way um, that is just so much more, more rewarding and joyful. Yeah. And I think people are starting to recognize that. And I'm sure that you can relate to this too, but I have so many clients that call me, you know, thinking that they have to be mean to their dog and they have to not let the dog sleep in the bed and not maintain the same connection they had with their dog and the mode of training, because, you know, I'm using quotes here, people, trainer, led them to believe that that's what they had to do, right? So it's really important for the average dog owner to rethink, um, you know, training advice that they're hearing. If it feels like shit, if it doesn't feel good and someone tells you you have to do that, probably not the right way, right? Like real training that, you know, focuses on relationship building and trust and science-based research will not make you feel like that. Yeah. (laughs) I think we already kind of touched on this, but I think it's worth diving more into, you know, why consent matters in dog training. Right. So I really love the work of Dr. Susan Friedman, who talks quite a bit about um, the choice being a primary reinforcer. So control over one's environment, um, control over outcomes, being able to use one's behavior to get outcomes. Um, so be, being able to control the environment that you're in, that it is as much of a reinforcer as food and shelter and water. So dogs really need it. We all need it to survive. Um, and so it matters because it affects our dog's behavioral health. It, it, it affects every aspect of their lives. Um, choice is really, 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 really important. Um, and the consent piece comes into that very much so. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, looking at it from your perspective, if you were living in a world where you didn't get to choose the vast majority of your actions in your day to day, right, like the long term trauma that that would cause, you know, and it's it's so important for dogs, right? Dogs need to be able to make choices in their day to day. And, you know, Obviously, dogs can't make some choices because it could put them in harm's way. And that's where we step up and we're their advocate for them and we try and make it easier. But yeah, it's it's super important for all creatures to have choice, especially the dogs who are living in our homes, um, you know, and they don't get they don't get the choice to come to our house. You know, like we make that choice. So I think it's the least we could do to give them choices once they're here. Right. And it's 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 ironic that um, we have such a problem with it because we we do control absolutely every single aspect of our dog's lives. Um, we control everything. I mean, every single thing. Um, and the choices that we are giving them are, I mean, they're, they're incredibly valuable for them, but they're really, it's negligible from the standpoint of what it takes from us, right? I mean, we control where they live, what they eat, when they eat, how often they eat, you know, when they, when they get to go out, if they get to go out, what they get to do when they go out, if they see another dog in their entire life, if they get to socialize, if they ever get to be, you know, it's everything. Um, so to say that we can incorporate choices for them is actually not that big of a deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> really, 
that much from us. Um, but I do think that it triggers um, people to feel they, we, we, you know, when you talk about consent or choice with dogs, people immediately go to the place where like, well, um, you know, what if my dog doesn't want to go on leash and he'll just run across the road and get killed? I mean, I've read that. I mean, people have said that. Or what if my dog doesn't want to get neutered? Um, you know, just like falling way off the bridge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, right over Besides the, the point. Yeah. Um, be- because the reality is actually the instances where we can't give them choices where they can't say no, they're really not that frequent. When we really are honest with ourselves when we, and we really look at how we can make their lives, give, give them a little bit more choices, um, those instances are really few and far between. Um, even when it comes to things like veterinary care, um, which is a necessity, but even within that, there are choices. There's lots of ways that we can make that um more consent based, which is obviously the cooperative care movement. Um, so yeah. 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 So, um, I think, I think, I think that that's a good bridge into some specific examples of where we can be building consent and choice into our day to day and our relationships with our dogs. Okay. So I think the easiest, um, when we look at is just Um, I know we talk a lot about letting dogs sniff. (laughs) Because it matters. People, please, for the love of God, just let them use their noses. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So just very simple stuff around where they're walking. You know, I I hear a lot of people say, well, my dog always wants to go this way, but we're going this way. And the question is, well, why are you going this way? Is that really that important? Um, And I think that comes from the fact that we come out, when we go for a walk with our dogs, we have a plan. I mean, I would like that. Um, I had a plan and we're going to go. And I, even when I was doing the best that I could and I had like, you know, a treat pouch filled with hot dogs and I had everything ready and we were going to go and my dog would step outside and it's like, "Mm, no, we're actually not going to do today. And my first impulse was like, come on, like you can do it. We can do this. Um, but he didn't want to. And that's not to say, I mean, he obviously was fearful and, you know, all of those things. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be actively helping our dogs and building their comfort and all that. I'm not trying to say you should sequester your dog and not let them walk. But um, we tend to have our the plan we have for the walk interfere sometimes. And if we just say, well, we're just going to take this walk and we're going to go wherever the, my dog wants to go and they can sniff this bush for 15 minutes um, or they can just take 15 minutes to walk down one block. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort for us, but it gives tremendous amount of enrichment for them. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to, you know, and I think this is something that I've definitely struggled with because when I'm out walking, I want to be like walking, like, let's go, let's do this, you know? And I've really had to take a deep look at how my agenda is has negatively impacted the experience of my dogs, Mm -hmm. you know? And like we were talking about earlier, Waylon, whoo, bless his heart. He has taught me a lot in that because Waylon's motivation is to stop every few feet and sniff a lot, you Mm -hmm. know? And I really had to dig deep and realize that like the outing was for him. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like I needed to let him do that, you know? And I think two people can build other ways into their life, you know, like, and Waylon and I definitely do a lot more off leash stuff so that he gets to stop and do all the sniffing and I don't have to feel 
as negative about stopping so much because I can keep my pace, you know? So I think that there's a lot of creative solutions to make sure that we're both getting what we want out of it. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And I think, again, it, you know, it's really just, um, you know, acknowledging that dogs have preferences, you know, they have preferences, they have preferences for, you know, which surface they're going to sleep on in your house, um, with what, um, what food they're going to eat, you know, where they want to walk. So dogs have preferences and being able to really saying, well, those matter, those preferences matter. Um, and I'm going to try to take them into account, right? It doesn't mean that your dog's now ruling your household just means that we acknowledge um, that they have preferences and we take them into account. Um, yeah. so books, I think, are the probably the easiest. The, uh, also, when it comes to um, physical touch and petting, so that's a big one. Um, there's lots of great information out there. Eileen Anderson of Eileen and Dogs has a great blog on consent in petting and how to really implement it. I think it's really wonderful for children um, to, n- number one, be able to read dog body language, but also interact with dogs in a way that um, takes how the dog's feeling into account. So now if you have a really cuddly, friendly dog that wiggles from head to toe every time they see a person, that might not be as much of a big deal, although I still think it's important. But there are a lot of dogs that aren't 100% comfortable with human touch. Um, I have a dog like that. I mean, even with me, now he will tolerate it. If I pet him too long, he'll tolerate it. But if I really incorporate the consent testing, then I really get to see just how much of it he wants. Um, Really just that, you know, we pet dogs in a certain way, certain, you know, body parts um, for just a few seconds and then we stop and see what the dog chooses. And I do think that's pretty eye-opening because a dog that wants for you to continue touching them will tell you that. So they will lean in, they will nudge your hand, they will, it will be very clear that that's what they want. And then a dog who actually wasn't that crazy about it might just step away, which is speaks volumes. Um, and it is such a huge uh, benefit for safety. You know, especially when it comes to interactions with, you know, smaller people, kids. Yeah. And, and so that's a huge part because I also think that, you know, you know, we all know how bites happen. And we all know that, you know, every dog has a threshold and tolerance eventually runs out. Um, but beyond ensuring safety for the people, it gives the dog a really powerful message, which is that you will be heard. You know, your body will be listened to. Um, And actually, (laughs) letting a dog opt out of something, and this isn't just petting, increases the chances of them opting in. Because the power of choice. Um, And that's really the crux of kind of a lot of the cooperative care work that I think people get hung up on, which is like, well, if if, if I ask my dog if they want their nails clipped, they'll never say yes. Oh, they will. (laughs) If it's done right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I think on, you know, the petting front, I think it's especially important with little dogs. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it's like, I, I have so many clients who have little dogs and, you know, I bring up the question, do you think your dog actually enjoys being picked up? And a lot of my clients have never asked themselves that. 
Right. And it's okay. Right. Like it's okay. Like, you know, I'm not trying to show, throw shade at anyone, but I'm trying to help people recognize that like little dogs in the vast majority of cases do not want to be picked up even by you, but you've never given them the choice. You've never asked, you know, so exactly what you're saying, right? Like reach down to pick up the dog, but don't pick them up and see what they do. They move away. There's your answer, you know? And it's, it's really a beautiful thing when dogs understand that they have the choice to opt out, you know, and I'm sure you can relate to this too, Jenny, but you know, I've worked with a lot of cases where I'm called in after the dog has bit the third person, you know, and there's consequences, they're facing legal action. And I have had so much success with recognizing when dogs do and don't want to be interacted with and dogs you know, in a lot of cases don't bite after that because once they recognize that people are going to listen and they can get up and move away, there's no need to bite anymore because people are actually listening for the first time in this dog's life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really great point with small dogs um, in that, um, you know, just because you can pick up a dog, it doesn't mean you should. And I do think that small dogs are treated differently just simply for the fact that it's easier to just move them, right? So if you have a dog that might be aggressing, um, so showing discomfort, um, picking them up and moving them away is kind of the go-to for a lot of people, um, which isn't necessarily, you know, what the dog wants. Um, would want to move away, but may not want to be handled in such a way. So, in, yeah, so it, that, that's huge. That's huge for small dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about some other examples where consent and choice and training really matter. Anything that has to do with um, grooming, handling, or veterinary care. When we think about like things that our dogs don't enjoy and um, the, the downside of forcing a dog to endure something scary or stressful isn't just that they're going to be scared and stressed for that amount of time that the event is happening. It is the fallout from that, which is the resulting anxiety and avoidance. Kind of going back to what you're saying again, what do we, why does this matter? (laughs) Yeah. So when it comes to things like, you know, grooming and handling for, for those of us who do that at home, for example, Um, So what I had with my dog is he became really bath phobic and what ended up happening is he started to associate pretty much any environmental stimuli that could potentially signal a bath. Um, So that could be, you know, obviously the water running, the shower door sliding, the bathroom door opening, me being near the bathroom door, my partner being next to the bathroom door, my partner changing his clothes, um, me carrying a towel. So a whole host of things that actually happen throughout the day that then created an environment of anxiety for him in his own home. So as a baseline, our home should be safe places for dogs. And they're very, very smart. Um, And there's actually a behavior professional in my area who said that phobias travel backwards. Um, So the dog starts to look at all of the things before the scary thing happened. What were all of those signals that could predict the thing happening? I need to look for them and I need to avoid. And so then you end up having a dog who lives in their home and is not, doesn't feel safe there. Um, so they're now running and hiding or shaking or really avoiding situations that are the everyday thing in the, happening in your home. So that's that 
crummy. Like that is a really crappy way to live. Um, so we want to look at all of those basic things from putting on your dog's harness, right? There's lots of dogs that run away from harnesses. So many. <laughs> yeah. Um, to any kind of handling. So that could be handling their paws, handling their body parts. Um, obviously, any medical care that's necessary, ear cleaning, um, you know, handling of toes that might get injured, uh, paws that might get injured, you know, clipping, bath. So all of those things um, where we can make that less stressful. Yeah. Uh, do that by um, obviously working to increase their comfort by doing desensitization, counter conditioning and building positive associations. But layering and consent is also very important. Um, so those are called either consent behaviors or start button behaviors. And um, I don't know how to pronounce their names correctly, but um, Eva Bertelson and Emily Johnson Vey um, from Carpe Momentum have done a lot of work on start button behaviors. I think they started doing it for agility work, um, but now do a lot. Um, I would, if anyone's interested, I'd really encourage you to look them up. Um, they teach classes on this. They have lots of um, workshops. Um, so a start and button behavior is essentially a behavior that indicates that when the dog performs this behavior or offers this behavior, then the next thing is going to happen. So that could be, let's say if you are, um, so I clip my dog's nails when he lays on his side. And so I trained the behavior of lateral recumbency where he lays down and puts his head on the floor. Um, and then I started to add some paw handling. And we do this in really, really short bursts, just a couple of reps. And he learns that when he puts when he puts his head on the floor, that's when I touch his paw. If the head comes off the floor, then I stop. And so when people wonder, you know, how can dogs understand consent? They can understand that when I do this, this other thing will happen. And if I don't do this, this other thing will not happen. And if I stop doing this, this other thing will stop happening. Um, and so that also helps them to have control in the process. Um, because I think we can, you know, if you, if we're doing a lot of handling and then we're feeding, we're handling, we're feeding, um, sometimes it's hard to gauge where the dog's actually at. Um, they might be like, well, I'll take this food. I'm not hundred percent comfortable, but I'm kind of okay. I'll still stay here. I'll take this food. Um, but then you try the next time and you see some regression or they're not that comfortable or they're pulling the paw away, which means you already way over threshold if they're having to pull their paw away. But having them, by layering that extra step in where they can offer behavior first to signal I'm ready because they know what's going to happen, you run away less of a risk of pushing them over threshold and you're giving them more control. And, you know, when I first started doing this, I was blown away at how much more I was able to accomplish around handling because my dog had control and he knew it he could stop it at any moment. Um, so I think that's really the big profound piece around cooperative care with consent and start button behaviors that I think can really change our dog's experience around handling and grooming and vet care and all of that. Yeah, no. Okay. And guys, I'm going to include links to everything that Jenny has mentioned in the show notes too, so that you can check that stuff out because I think it's well worth diving deeper into. And, you know, and I think with the whole start button thing, I think, what I really love about it is opening the dialogue, you know, because for me, clipping nails used to be a shitty experience for me too. 
Because holding the dog and clipping nails against their will sucks for both parties. Like, I mean, I'm sure people who are listening can relate. Like, it is very unenjoyable. So if you could take a couple of steps back and really teach your dog to opt in and stop when they want, and you will also stop. Like you said, like, you you really accomplish a lot really quickly when the dog understands the parameters of what is happening. Exactly. And you build trust. I think that there is, that's also something that is really powerful that your dog trusts you because I think anybody who has ever had to administer medicine, do any kind of handling or grooming through trickery. (laughs) Yeah. Understand that number one, it does not feel good. So I'm right there with you. It feels terrible. I think when when you have a dog that is stressed around things like this, especially going to the vet, we also are stressed about it. That's also very, very stressful for us. Um, so then we avoid it. Um, and it's just becomes this whole big cycle. But when we trick our dogs, that is not, that is not value added to our relationship. <laughs> no, it's subtracted. Exactly. So people say, Oh, my dog is like really tired. Like, can I clip his nails? Cause they're really tired. And you know, and if your dog's nails are really long, it feels like so seductive to, to, to do that. But again, you know how, what that is really true. That's a like high level of trickery to take a dog that's sleeping and do something. Okay, that's betrayal of trust. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you're just building more trust. And I think anyone who has a dog that is skews towards fearful or is fearful or anxious, um, Giving, building trust and providing choices and increasing and increasing safety are the three most important things because without that, you really can't make progress. So the more choice and control you can add to your dog's life in whatever increment you can in whichever way is build that build. It helps with the bigger picture. Yeah. Your dog overall behavioral health. Yeah. And I think, you know, something it's important to note here is that that is pertinent to dogs of all ages, right? Yeah. We're talking puppies to geriatric dogs here, right? Yeah. And and I think I see that a lot in puppies, right? Where people are like, oh, the puppy's distracted. I'm going to do this, this, and this. That will compound, my friends. It absolutely will. And again, like, no one is immune to this. I definitely am guilty of this. Okay. I'm totally the person who, when Waylon was a puppy and he was sleeping, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get in there and clip one nail. Yeah. No, not great for our relationship. And honestly, I had to take a lot of, you know, I had to backpedal quite a bit to get back to a point where he could voluntarily participate in nail tripping. Right. So like you said, it's seductive. I like that word because it really is like, oh, they're asleep. I'm just going to get there and clip, clip, clip. And you know what? I think we're all spoiled with some of those dogs who just let us get away with that stuff. <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, they clip my nails. It's no big deal. And if you have that dog, you are spoiled and you're not going to get that second, that dog twice. So <laughs> now is the time because it's going to serve you in your relationship with, with future dogs too. Um, I think what you said is really important around it compounding because it absolutely compounds. And I think when you, you can get a, you can get away with a lot with puppies. Um, but even dogs, as they get older, um, a lot of times when we see dogs, um, just, I've seen it with my own dog. I've seen it with a lot of dogs where their experiences with the vet, it doesn't happen. I mean, it can happen overnight. You can have a super traumatic experience, but for most it's a gradual process. You know, your dog was once fine at the vet and then all of a sudden they can't be touched. And and that's because of every single incident of having their 
autonomy and agency taken away, of being restrained, um, of having a procedure pushed through despite the dog saying in every which way that they don't want to, right? And again, even in that context, there are non-emergency procedures that can wait. They can wait. Like my last appointment with my dog at the vet, we got to a certain point, you know, and after which I realized he he basically was done and we stopped the appointment and we're coming back later. We're regrouping, reevaluating, and we're coming back. Um, and it's not the end of the world. It can feel that way in the moment. It's like, yeah, I need all the shots. I need the blood work. I need everything right now. But if you don't, you don't have to. And I think that every time we push our dogs through something they don't want, that they're stressed and scared of, it's going to come back. It's going to be worse, which I think is really important to keep in mind that um, faster is not better. So faster is not better in any in any facet of working with our dogs. I know that I know that is, you know, big point of contention around what methods work faster and why, but just, you know, faster is just not better. It's just never, it's never better. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And I think that this leads into a really important conversation about being an advocate for your dog in the case of veterinary care, right? Because all vets are not created equal. And the fact that, you know, standard procedure is to take the dog in the back and do things as quickly as they can without really taking into consideration how the dog is feeling and coping with the scenario. So, you know, guys, that's on you, right? Like, so the vet that I take, um, Tiva and Waylon to just for like their shots and stuff like that, like they are not forward thinking. in in that way. Right. And I call and I schedule longer appointments so that the tech can come into the room and I can be a part of the veterinary care. That is not something that they normally offer. That is something that I have to like explicitly state, Mm -hmm. right. That like the dog is not going in the back with you without me. Right. Because scary stuff happens back there and you are the dog safety net. And if you are not there and you're removed from that scenario, that's when you find yourself in these circumstances where quote unquote, all of the sudden the dog is terrified or acting aggressively at the vet. Yes. Um, excellent points. Absolutely. And I think that there is, you know, the veterinary field has, has progressed, has progressed quite a bit. Um, and, there's definitely lots of work to be done. So, but I'm grateful for the progress that has been, um, been made around that. Um, but the, the piece around, I have, I had a friend and a colleague who once said there is, if my dog is stressed and it is, if my dog is in distress, there is no benefit for them to be without me. Right. Yes. The benefit of if your dog is distressed, what is the value add for you not to be there? And I think there is, some sentiments where people might say, well, your dog, you know, they're better, they're better without you or they're better in the back or, you know, you stress them out. The truth is most of the time, that's just a dog shutting down. Yeah. I'm feeling a lot less comfortable to express how they're feeling without their person there. And advocacy is really, really big. Um, I think medical settings can be very intimidating for people, both Human medicine and veterinary medicine, I think, can be intimidating. You're in there. Things are happening. They're happening fast. Um, I think it can be really challenging to step up. You may not know that you can. You may not not know what's going on. Um, But having a plan is really, really helpful, what you said, and talking to your vet ahead of time. 
Um, and the piece around going into the back, I would just say, you know, um, don't, <laughs> don't have your dog go in the back. Um, no. And you can always find an, an, an alternative veterinary practice who will accommodate that for you if your current vet cannot. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a movement in the vet world. Um, is it called Fear Free? Is that what yep. it's called? Yeah. Okay. So guys, I'll include links to that in the show notes too, so that you can hopefully connect with a fear-free vet in your area too. And, you know, just one last note on that, like both of my dogs, um, have had to have surgeries and that's another one where I was there when they gave the sedation and I stayed in the room with my dogs until they were sedated before I left them. I think that being in a kennel while the sedation starts to take effect, sounds like a a horrible experience that I would not want to endure. And there's no way I'm going to let my dog endure that either. And like, that was just standard, right? Like Waylon went, went to get neutered. And again, I had to explicitly say, right. I want to be in the room. Did it cost more? Sure. But the money is well worth it. Knowing that he's coming out of that experience as emotionally stable as he went in. That's amazing. I mean, that's really wonderful. Um, you know, I wish I could say that for the surgeries my dog has had. And I can tell you that there was a really quite significant shift in his comfort at the vet after he was, he has gone through all of those procedures. Um, and just going back a little bit about the fear-free piece. So I'm a, actually a fear-free certified trainer. Um, and a couple of notes around the fear-free, uh, finding a fear-free vet near you. The fearfreepets.com, I believe is the website, but you will, you will list it, has a directory. And first of all, it has lots of free resources for dog owners, which I would recommend anyone to check out. But the when you look through their the directory, it is still really challenging to find a fear-free certified clinic. So to have an entire clinic certified is still a pretty tall task, and there's really not a whole lot of them. So you may search for a clinic and find no, no in your area. But if you search by professional, so if you look for a certified veterinarian or a certified vet tech, you will then find where they're practicing. So you might find... Okay lots of different fear-free certified professionals who are working at different clinics. And then you can then contact the clinic, schedule an appointment with that um, veterinarian. And you can also just have a conversation about what their fear-free practices are because there are um, very specific guidelines for how fear-free visits go. And even if you, they can't abide by all of them, having someone who is, who's gone through the course, who's done all the work, who understands um, low stress handling, who understands those things is still really, really important. Um, and chances are they probably also have pretty modern view of dog behavior, right? Cause we, yeah. we do some things around, um, you know, the outdated alpha dominant stuff that sometimes comes from, um, um, that sometimes people hear during their veterinary visits. Um, so that also really, really helps. Uh, yeah. As- yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that this is a good segue into scenarios where um, it's going to be uncomfortable for you, right? And, you know, it's not always easy to tell your veterinarian, like, no, you cannot do that, mm-hmm. you know? And and I've had to do that. And I consider myself a very non-confrontational person. It's not my preferred mode, right? Like, I really would try to avoid it. But, you know, there was a particular scenario early on in Waylon's life where two vet techs were trying to um, hold him down and do a vaccination. And I had to very firmly tell them absolutely no. You know, so guys, 
it's up to you. You're going to find yourself in scenarios that maybe are uncomfortable, but you have to step up and you have to be an advocate for your dog because if you aren't, it's going to cause problems later. And it's, it's not fair, you know, like you signed up to be the dog owner. So you got to do it and you would do it for your kids. You would do it for the other people in your life. So, um, you know, you, you just got to take a deep breath and just work through it because you and your dog are going to be better off getting through some of maybe those uncomfortable scenarios. For sure. I mean, advocacy is so important, I think, in every aspect of our dog's lives. Um, but I will also say that if you really feel like the advocacy you're doing for your dog in the veterinary setting feels really, really challenging, I would explore other vets. Yes. Uh, because I think that um, I have advocated for my dog at my vet and was met with, um, you know, with a lot of positivity and was able to make the changes I wanted to make. And there really were no issues. And it doesn't mean that every experience is going to be perfect. Um, but you definitely want to be, to have veterinary care in a place where this isn't an uphill battle every time. Yeah. There options. There are options out there. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, another uncomfortable conversation, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about petting, right? Um, sometimes you're going to have to tell your friends, like, don't touch the dog. <laughs> right. And those scenarios can be uncomfortable for sure. But if your dog is not into it, if your dog is not enjoying an experience, you need to communicate with the other being that you share the language, you know, right? Like that's up to you. You got to do it. And it's worth it. And I think, you know, like you were saying that you were met with some positivity in, in the vet world. I think that we can all slowly but surely be growing and evolving as a community of dog owners so that we can be more savvy and improve not only our quality of life, but also our dog's quality of life. For sure. And I think with the petting piece, which can be hard, right? It can be hard with family, it can be hard with friends. You know, everyone, everyone's expert number one everyone knows you know everyone has lots of advice to dispense around dog behavior and training um but also you know for my dog who doesn't love being pet i've had family friends who take offense to that you know so there's actually you know work on my part where i have to say you know this isn't personal no he doesn't hate you no this is just you know he doesn't enjoy that so that can be really tough too because people need some hand holding um but i find it helpful to give them alternatives you know it's like People will, most of the time, people will say, can I pet your dog? And I say, hi. And my response is usually, well, he actually doesn't love being pet, being pet, but hey, you can toss him this piece of cheese. Totally. Simple, like, and sometimes I'll be very specific. Like, I'll hand it over and I'll say, okay, just drop it right on the floor. Um, Because again, when you give people food, they tend to feed the dog directly, which is not great. Um, So giving very clear instructions around what to do um, and how to do it. Um, and then also helping your dog move away and get, get space, um, so that they don't feel cornered. Um, but giving somebody an alternative is really helpful. Sometimes there is no alternative and you just have to say no. So that's like a whole other way we have to coach ourselves to how mm-hmm. to hard no. Um, uh, but it, it's nice to give somebody if you can <laughs> something else they can do other than touch your dog on their head, for example. Yeah, for sure. Well, and like, you know, I I preach this all the time, but it's like, I'm constantly looking at a dog who's displaying a behavior I don't want to see. What would I rather see? And that absolutely applies to our interactions with our friends and our family and people, right? Give them something specific that they can do to get the desired outcome of interacting with their their dog. Yeah. Yeah. And, And most people in my experience are so delighted to like 
learn something new about a dog that they didn't know. Right. Like all dogs don't like to be pet. Like it's a thing. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, yeah. Right. And I think, you know, that kind of opens up maybe a dialogue that wouldn't have been there if you would have, you know, been rude. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to be rude because people are obnoxious and they won't stop. But by and large, I feel like people who want to interact with your dog really want to know more about dogs. Yeah. And also in that vein around just um, there, I do think we have kind of a social myth around what a dog is um, and how friendly they are. Um, So just the myth around like all dogs want to be pet. People always go to the, to pet the dog on the head. You know, a lot of dogs will duck. Um, some dogs really don't like it. Others tolerate it better than others. But for the most part, being touched on the head is not like something dogs enjoy. Yeah. Um, but in a bigger sense, we kind of have this myth around, you know, what is a friendly dog? And I use that in air quotes. Um, a dog that's, you know, great with dogs, great with people, great with children, great with strangers, great with, you know, plumbers knocking on your door in the middle of the day, walking in, like they're just waggy, they're happy, you know, and that's not really reality either. Yeah. And so I I always just want people to know and um, that you don't actually have to let someone pet your dog to prove they're friendly. Um, yes. Like, friendly is like very contextual. Behavior is very contextual. So nobody's friendly all the time. Nobody's aggressive all the time. So the question of is he or she friendly is um, very pointed and very unfair because it really depends, right? But I have answered that as depends. And the reaction is <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> depend. Well, it does depend. Like, how are you going to approach my dog? You know? And so that's the other thing is you don't have to prove that they're friendly by letting people interact with them in ways that could potentially put your dog in a situation where they won't succeed. Um, because that's really the, the most important thing is for us to set our dogs up for success. Um, because the fallout can be really, really um, problematic. So. Yeah. No. And, and I love that you owe nothing to anyone. Right. And it doesn't matter. And I find myself victim to that. Right. Because I own a blocky headed dog and I'm just like, I feel like I'm busting my ass to just like change stereotypes and stuff like that. But you're exactly right. It's about your dog and how they're doing in that exact moment. And if in that exact moment, they don't want to interact with a person, that doesn't mean that they're not friendly and you know that. So, you know, you owe nothing to anyone. Yeah. Um, that's also a wonderful point around just bully breeds, pit bull type dogs. You know, I work with a pit bull rescue. I have been for, for um, four years and there is more pressure. If you own a stigmatized breed, if your dog is of a stigmatized breed, there is more pressure on you. Um, number one, you deal with things that other people don't deal with on a daily basis being in a public space with your dog, yeah. your dog has less room for error. You have less room for error. And there are situations that will happen where your dog will get blamed, um, regardless. And the pressure to say, you know, my dog never met a stranger they didn't love, or the pressure to say, you know, this is a breed ambassador. Um, I hear that a lot. And I think that's a lot of pressure to put on a single dog to be an ambassador yeah. for an entire breed. Right. Um, especially because the stigma is created and it's so unfair. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I think if you own, if you have a, if you have a dog of, of a breed that's stigmatized, you do, you do have to do things differently. You, you know, it's unfair, but again, your number one priority is to keep your dog safe. Um, and so 
not putting a lot of pressure on them to prove everyone wrong because it really doesn't matter. Um, the important thing is your dog stays safe and everyone else stays safe. <laughs> yeah. And your dog leaves the experience just as good as they went into it or better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and I think I love what you said about, you know, the pressure of being a breed ambassador because I definitely feel that. And while Waylon is insanely social and he does love people and he does love other dogs, there are definitely still some scenarios where I tell people no. Yeah. Like you can't interact with him in this moment, right? And that's okay because Waylon's still a brilliant dog regardless of, you know, the bullshit notions, for lack of a better <laughs> word, right, that people are still grasping onto. But that's a whole nother podcast okay. episode. <laughs> okay so jenny um final thoughts on consent and choice in our relationships with dogs um i would say the biggest is that it is easier than you think okay it is easier than than we think the you know we tend to go to the place of like well i can't always ask you know i can't always ask my dog for consent and true and the, the truth is no you can't and if they can't say no then we don't ask Okay. Yeah. If it's an emergency and your dog needs something done, we just don't ask. We do the best that we can to keep them comfortable. We do the best that we can to increase their comfort, um, but we don't ask, right? But again, I think when we really are honest with ourselves, those instances are far and few between, yeah. right? There's been a lot of things that I once thought I absolutely had to have my dog do, including baths, right? We do baths differently now. And he's, he's no more dirty, <laughs> but he's a lot happier. It just sometimes takes a little bit of creativity. It takes a little bit more time. But there, the instances where your dog absolutely can't opt out are not as frequent as we would think. Yeah. The benefits are tremendous and really um, profound um, that once you start to incorporate more choice and consent in your dog's life, you may find that that is really a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I can, and it can be in an, a launching pad into, um, relationship building and communication and a lot of other aspects in your life, you know, and yeah, right. Like if you want to take your dog a lot of places, you want to trust your dog in a lot of scenarios, be a trustworthy teammate. And I think you'll be pretty surprised with how far it will take you. Indeed. Yep. I love that. It's, yeah. it is. We're, you know, we're a team with our dogs. Yeah. Okay. So Jenny, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you? So they can find me on, so I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and at dog minded on Instagram at dog minded Boston on Facebook. And my website is dogmindedboston.com. Awesome. And guys, she posts so much awesome inspirational stuff. I love following you on the gram. So I'll be sure to include all of that stuff in the show notes so that people can find you. And then um, Jenny offers remote consults too, guys. So if you want to work with her, you can learn more about that at her website too. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Do you want to be able to trust your dog off leash? Do you want to improve your relationship with your dog? A dog with a trustworthy recall gets way more opportunities to adventure and be a dog. Let's be honest, having a dog that doesn't come when called really kind of sucks. So, do you want to make your life easier? Do you want to learn how to train a trustworthy recall? 
you have 10 minutes a day to devote to training for just 30 days, check out my online course, Trustworthy Recalls. I give you step-by-step instructions for teaching a trustworthy recall with just 10 minutes a day for 30 days. You can learn more about trustworthy recalls at agfdogtraining.com. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about us, please check us out on Instagram at a good feeling underscore in co you can also find us on facebook at a good feeling dog training as well as our website agfdogtraining.com. dog